Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I was nervous and it was so funny because I'm all about nature and I just envisioned this beautiful documentary that was going to be kind of a healing experience as you watched it. So it was going to be these beautiful scenes and the interviews will be outdoors and you'd see these elements of nature within the interviews. Darren Weissman was our first interview and we were shooting with three cameras, three angles, and it was just like outside so we had to stop when the wind came we had to stop there's helicopters that like fly over my house for tourism it's like it was a disaster but Darren was so gracious and we ended up reshooting his interview because there were so many hiccups and it was kind of the training wheels day I learned so much what not to do going forward that we went back and shot his interview months later because he was kind enough to do so in hindsight yeah I should have been way more methodical in my preparation (laughs) Hey there, we're back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. I'm Light Watkins, your host. Not sure if this is your first time listening to At the End of the Tunnel, but if it is, I've been having conversations with people who've started movements for social good. Some people have started huge movements, some have started medium-sized movements, and others have started small movements. The idea is to share their stories with you so that you can be inspired to follow whatever's tugging at your heart. So this is not just about listening to interviews. It's really about using what you hear to take the next step along your path with a little more courage and inspiration than you had before you click play on this episode. And if that happens, I'm happy. I've done my job. Also, one note about my process, I'm currently nomading and I've been doing so since 2018, which means I've recorded these conversations literally all over the world. I'm currently in Mexico City and just before I spoke with my next guest, Kelly Gores, my Wi-Fi went out in my Airbnb and I had to use my cell phone and the standard mic that goes along with it as opposed to my professional mic. So all that to say, if my end of the conversation sounds a little echoey, like I'm in the bathroom, that's why. I'm in this very cavernous space, which is beautiful, but I don't have access to my normal equipment. But it was still a wonderful conversation with Kelly, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So long story short, Kelly is the creator and director of a documentary called Heal, H-E-A-L, Heal, which is about the power of the mind and frankly, the human spirit on healing the body. And it explores the power that our thoughts and beliefs and emotions have on our health and our ability to heal. If you haven't yet seen the film, you definitely want to stream it. It was the number one documentary on iTunes when it was first released a couple of years ago, and it's still tracking very well on other streaming platforms. But what we're going to hone in on in this conversation is Kelly's fascinating backstory. We're going to look at how she got the inspiration to even think she was qualified to make a documentary, even though she had never done one before. We're going to look at what her first steps were like and how she went from being a waitress to sitting with the likes of Deepak Chopra, Bruce Lipton, and Joe Dispenza. 
We're also going to talk about what mistakes she made when the production started and how she found people who were going to let her film their healing journey, which is a very vulnerable thing to do, and how she was able to get the documentary on Netflix, even though they sent out a statement saying they were not interested in any outside content at that time. It was an awesome peek behind the scenes of how these kinds of projects come to be and the challenges that regular people have to overcome when following their purpose and their passion. And if you're going through a healing journey right now, or if you know someone who is, I think you'll find this conversation especially helpful and you'll get a ton of useful resources and information about things to consider from all sides of the healing journey. So sit back and relax and let's dive into my conversation with the incomparable Kelly Noonan Gores. Kelly, it's a pleasure having you on at the end of the tunnel. I've been wanting to have you on for a while now, so this is an honor. It's been a long time coming, and I can't wait to share your story with my audience. So welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You know I love you. I like to start the conversations off talking about childhood. And where did you grow up? I grew up in the LBC, Long Beach, California. That's what I thought. You're a Southern Californian girl. Yeah. So thinking back to little Kelly growing up in Long Beach County, do you remember there being a favorite toy or activity that you particularly enjoyed that you remember? Oh my gosh. So many, a couple, I collected cabbage patch kids. So, (laughs) and I thought it was fascinating. They were all born on the first of the month. So it was like November 1st and October 1st. And so I was really into my cabbage patch dolls. I was obviously really into Barbies too. One thing we loved doing as kids, we did a lot of camping. We also had like a massive teepee that we put up. It's kind of like a legit teepee in our living room. And we would play this play pretend game that we titled Lost. We'd either play it out in the wilderness when we're camping with our like groups of families. And we would just like pretend we were lost and the kids, we'd have to like find our way back to camp. And it was super fun and imaginative and survival-y and very cool. I know you have a brother. Was he your main playmate or who who were you playing this lost game with? Yeah, he would he is two years older than me, so he'd play. We probably went on these camping trips with eight other families. So it was all kids my age. It was maybe mm-hmm. these girlfriends of mine, Jenny and Jesse Peebles. <laughs> they played with us often. And then it was Nick and Blythe Ferrara. So it was mostly us six and then whoever else was along. So when you six were hanging out playing these games, what was your role within that friend group? I was definitely one of the leaders of the narrative. I like to take charge. I was the director of that play. And what was the vibe like in your household when you guys were growing up? What were some of the lessons that were being echoed from your parents? My experience was is that I had a father who... I loved, but he was an airline pilot and he was gone for two weeks every month, Mm -hmm. which we actually were, God bless him. I'm I'm so close to my dad today and he's definitely softened with age, but we were glad that he was gone for two weeks a month because he was the strict one. He had very hot temper, short fuse, and he was six foot three. So to us little people, we were scared of what that fuse went off. So we kind of had like two weeks of freedom a month and then two weeks where we were walking on eggshells. <laughs> and 
I remember like we'd go on these camping trips and we'd be setting up the tent and like the littlest thing would set him off. And I would be mortified that he would lose his temper in front of like all these other families. And it was just a running joke. Like, oh, it's Marty, you know, losing his temper again, saying every cuss word under the sun. And I was mortified and I was yearning for a much calmer dad. And so I kind of resented him for his temper. And I think it made me very hypervigilant. Also, I think I soaked up that he's so hard on himself and then he takes it out on everybody else. He has some weird, like he can't make a mistake. So he gets frustrated very easily if things aren't working out or he makes a mistake. If we lost something, we'd get in trouble. It's like, well, why didn't you put it back where you found it? You know, it was very military. He was raised in the military. His dad was a Marine. He was in the Air Force. So there's a lot of tension, I think. And then my mom became like mama bear where she would, she was like super mom would take me to 20 different sports I played, take me to practice, take my brother to his stuff. And she was super easygoing, super fun. We'd do sing-alongs in the car. And when my dad was being a child, she would defend us and stick up for us. So my mom was like the super mom and my dad was kind of like the big tyrant. It makes sense because, you know, as an airline pilot, there's very little room for error or incompetence and you have yeah. to be perfect every day. So that's true. That's exactly right. There's parts of it that we appreciate, you know, that he's so careful and so to the T and in the details. What do you feel like were your takeaways from that as a young person, just managing those two energies and then I guess relating that to whatever you're going through in life? How's that showing up for you? Yeah, I think I became very, like I said, super vigilant. So I would understand what people wanted to make them happy. I was very, very like good at reading people. And playing that chameleon and morphing into whatever would make those people happy to avoid any sort of (laughs) tension that I was living in at home. At the same time, I also didn't allow myself to express emotion as overtly. I like held a lot in because I just refused to be like my dad, which I don't think was a healthy (laughs) lesson, but... It's ironic. He he always, we joke about it now, but he's like, look, I'm super healthy because I get my emotions out all the time. You know, I'm like, well, too much, too much. So there's a part of me that has this aversion and allergy to drama now with people. So anybody who's like very dramatic and immature in a expressive way, I just judge and have an aversion to. <laughs> so that's just a knee jerk reaction. You know, it gave me a lot of great survival mechanisms at the time that turned into benefits and tools for me in life now and character traits that I wouldn't want to change. But there are certain things that are exhausting, like people pleasing and beating myself up for making a mistake and continuing that punishment cycle on myself. So I'm just trying to bring a lot of awareness around that so I can not pass that same energy down to my kiddos. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. 
So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. And I know you eventually were very athletic in school. Were you always that way growing up or were you like the little skinny kid who had to kind of really work hard to develop those skills of coordination and whatnot? No, I was like very coordinated from the, I was definitely like the athletic one. <laughs> My brother didn't really have an interest in sports and I was like fully just, I loved anything. I, I don't know if it just came from my like natural competitive spirit or I just love sports. I don't know why. What was your sport? What'd you really take to early on? Soccer. I started soccer mm. when I was five and never looked wow. back. I was like one of only two girls in the league at the time with a bunch of boys. And that probably was my greatest motivator. <laughs> I was like, great. All the boys are here. I'm going to, I'm going to be really good at this. So mm. I played from age five through high school competitively. And then when I went to college, I kind of had to decide if I wanted to go to a division two school and with a scholarship or walk on to a division one school. And at that point I was like, I'm good, but I'd have to work really hard for me to continue at any level where it's worth playing. So I just kind of played for fun after that. Well, before we get to that point, I know that you'd gone camping one summer and you developed some issues with your lymph nodes. Can you talk about that experience? It was one of those times where my dad was gone. Thank God, because I would have never been able to go camping <laughs> because it was with a bunch of high school. I think I was a, a junior at the time mm-hmm. in high school and a bunch of kids were going down to San Onofre, which is like a really cool surf spot. And there's campsites there. And always, of course, there was going to be drinking of alcohol and smoking of weed. And, and so I asked my mom, I was honest with her. Most of my friends had the light of their parents to go, but I was just honest. I was like, Hey, these kids were going camping. She knew most of the people in the group. So she said, yes, just whatever you do, don't get sick. <laughs> like take care of yourself. You know, I just remember her saying those words. And then of course I come back and I'm sick for the week because you don't get any sleep on those weekends. You have way too much fun and you're sleeping out in the cold. And once I was well, maybe the following weekend, I felt better finally. And, but my glands didn't go down. So they were like golf balls in the side of my neck. They were like very hard and you could kind of see them sticking out. Went to the doctor. He gave me antibiotics after a course of antibiotics. Didn't have any change. So he gave me a different antibiotic. Same thing. Didn't change. So they were like, huh, 
that's interesting. We'll see if it just goes down over time. Well, six months later, they decided to do a lymph node biopsy. So I went under general anesthesia for the first time, which when they pushed my IV, they pushed it too fast or they didn't dilute it with the pre-anesthesia. And it like, I thought my arm was on fire. Like it was the worst pain and most terrifying experience in my life. I was like, ah, so that experience gave me a phobia of IVs for my entire life that I'm still working through. <laughs> but results of the lymph node biopsy were totally benign, inconclusive. So they still didn't know what was going on. I went to a chiropractic appointment with my mom because she was still playing soccer at her age for fun and seeing this chiropractor every week. And so he felt my glands as they do. And he said, why don't you try taking a shot of apple cider vinegar two times a day, every day for the next week. And sure enough, by the end of the week, the glands were almost gone. So I did a couple more days. They were completely gone. And so that was the first probably seed that was planted in my head about a distrust in the biggest institutions like Kaiser, who almost burned my arm off. And when the answer was found on a health food store shelf. What was the justification of this, of the apple cider vinegar? Why, why do you suggest that as opposed to any other remedy? I didn't know at the time. I didn't even ask, but I'm assuming it had to do with his instinct that it was some sort of infection that wasn't clearing mm-hmm. and that that would change the pH and start to get things flowing in the lymph flowing, I guess. I'm not sure. Yeah, because obviously we're not giving medical advice on this interview, but I know people <laughs> may listen to this and, and probably think, oh, I can use that for my my leg has gangrene. Let me just take some apple cider vinegar. <laughs> like, obviously there's some illnesses that require Western intervention, but you want to do your own research <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if you're thinking of using these different remedies for other things. So awesome. So you must have been really... Really, because you, you said that lasted for like a year, I believe. The, the, mm-hmm. the lymph nodes, and that's you're in high school where kids are obviously. What, are they, what were they calling you, Frankenstein or something? <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, we're so hyper aware and and hypercritical of ourselves. So people probably noticed, but it wasn't as bad as I as I made it out to be. You know, but I was still definitely conscious of like my neck. Like you could see my glands coming out of my neck. But yeah, less Frankenstein than than I was picturing in the mirror. Yeah, to you, it would have been like the moon coming out of your neck, but I'm sure it may, may not have been noticeable to a lot of people. <laughs> totally. But you must have been so happy when that thing went away, right? Oh, it was amazing. It was like a miracle. I was like, what? And that was your first exposure to quote unquote alternative medicine? Yeah. From my recollection, that was my first foray into the two different paths. Was that a story that went around your family? Like, guess what happened to Kelly? She, we took, was your mom like, I knew, you know, that was going to work or were people skeptical or? I think we just got a kick out of it. We're just like, oh, okay, great. We didn't have the knowledge back then that we do now. We don't have the awareness. I was raised on Domino's pizza, Kraft macaroni and cheese and (laughs) hot dogs. And like, it's a miracle that I'm healthy today from what my, I was the pickiest eater. It's not my parents' fault. She thought she was being healthy by not letting me get the Fruit Loops and the Frosted Flakes and like the overtly sugary cereals. But mm-hmm. then we'd get regular Cheerios and put a tablespoon of white table sugar on it, mm-hmm, you know, sprinkled mm-hmm. over. It's like the same thing. So mm-hmm. we just weren't aware back then. So I think we just like didn't think much of it. We're like, oh, great. Moved on. When you were that age and you envisioned your future, what did you see yourself doing or becoming? 
Well, I had been acting on and off from the age of five and, mm-hmm. you know, I was in commercials and like small parts in films and it was this push pull. Like I loved, I loved seeing myself in a commercial on television. I thought that was so cool. And it was, it was cool to feel special from your friends going, Oh my gosh, I saw you in that commercial or whatever, or that film. So those parts were cool. But then at the same time, there was a fear around being special or the center of attention or standing out from the crowd. And so I was like, really wanted to stay humble. It was like, there was parts of it I loved. And then there's parts of it that I was really trying to like downplay. And also like, it was a a lot of work. Like after I'd have to leave early from school, go up to LA, go to an audition, then come home and go to soccer practice. It was just, it was a lot. So around 16 years old, I decided to take a break from acting. And I was like, I just want to be a regular kid for my last two years of high school. And I went away to Berkeley because I, you know, I was like, I'm too smart to be an actor. I'm going to go to Berkeley and figure out what I want to do. Took all the classes under the sun and after poli sci and art history and film and and psychology, I was like, nope, I want to be an actor. So I moved, I transferred back to to LA <laughs> to be an actor. So all of that to say, I truly envisioned myself being like an Academy Award winning actor. And I loved the creativity and the play pretend. But as I was hitting adolescence and becoming so self-conscious, I was losing that freedom of play and imagination. And I was just way too self-conscious. So that kind of applies to my story because I I became so self-conscious and came so in my head. Am I doing it right? Am I making Mm -hmm. a mistake? Which is tying back to the whole, everything I learned from my dad. I started to seek out healers and therapists and different types of people to try and remove subconscious blocks that were holding me back from being Meryl Streep. You know, it's all very comical looking back, but, um, (laughs) but it actually led me to my first like kind of self exploration and spirituality and and healers. I know you eventually started going to Agape, but was there like a book or even a conversation that you remember that ended up being pivotal in this transformation, this journey away from sort of conventional life to this intentionally spiritual life? Yes. So first book was that just like blew my mind and resonated so deeply was Return to Love by Marianne Williamson. And so I was in between transferring from Berkeley to UCLA. And in hindsight, I realized I was kind of depressed for the first time in my life at Berkeley and probably had to do with the weather and my terrible diet and lack of connections, you know, easy friend connections that I had left at home in Long Beach. So all of those things, I was kind of depressed for the first time. So between that transfer of colleges, I traveled with my brother to Australia and this guy that I met down there, he like gave me the book Return to Love to read on the plane ride home. And as I was reading it, I was just like, holy shit, this is my truth. If we come from fear, we create hell on earth. If we come from love, we're creating heaven on earth. You know, and I was raised Catholic and kind of had this intuition that like all religions have the same universal foundation of truth, but they're just dressed in different cultural clothing. So I chose not to get confirmed as a Catholic because I have commitment issues and because (laughs) because I was like, well, I feel like before I confirm, I can't just like confirm what my families have done for generations. I need to like explore and learn everything before I confirm. So 
leading up to Berkeley, I was kind of questioning whether God even existed. And so when I read Return to Love, it just like dropped me into a truth that really gave me my spirit back. You know, I was just like, okay, this, this makes sense to me spiritually. And I also related to like Marianne's struggles and insecurities and relationship to men and all that stuff. So that was the first book. And then cut to kind of right around the time I met you in Santa Monica, I was working as a waitress and the bartender that I worked with, he handed me the DVD, The Secret, (laughs) which everybody has their opinion about and I can chuckle at it. But there was parts of The Secret that like opened my mind to this whole co-creative idea and energy and how the thoughts and emotions and frequencies we've put out into the world change our reality. So that kind of sent me on a path of reading Abraham Hicks about the law of attraction, reading Wayne Dyer, change your thoughts, change your life. I started meditating with you around that same time. I started going to Agape because Michael was in the secret. And the minute I walk into Agape, I was like, oh, this is what church should be. It's a microcosm of the world. You know, there's people of all shapes, colors, sizes, economic backgrounds. Everybody's high vibrate, like just high by the end of the thing, like just feeling the love. And he's channeling just really resonant truth for me. So I was just like feeling all of that. And then I can't remember where I got the book, The Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton. But that, dropped me into the physical healing aspect. Like when I learned about epigenetics and that we're not victims of our genes, it's just a blueprint and our lifestyle choices and our perceptions and our beliefs toggle the switches. Then it was all starting to come together. And people started asking me like, oh my God, how are you manifesting all these great things? Why are you so happy? And it, you know, it was a whole combination of things. It was meditation for sure. And it was kind of this new outlook and awareness. And I was just flooding my consciousness with positive content. And then I just ultimately just wanted to put all my teachers in a film so that I didn't have to keep telling everybody what I was doing. I was just like, just watch the film. (laughs) So you're meditating every day. You're going to Agape on Sundays. You're reading all about what some people would consider esoteric concepts, right? Watching movies like The Secret. Did you see What the Bleep Do We Know as well? I did later, yeah. So I've heard you talk about this before, but I actually can relate to this, your experience in that, you know, when I'm talking to people on this podcast about their journey, a lot of times something really bad happens in order to kind of cause them to pivot away from seeking that conventional idea of success into following their heart, taking leaps of faith and finding their purpose and all of that. And so, yeah, that's one way to do it. But then another way is some people are just really curious. You know, they have some experiences, it opens up some unlocked curiosity within and they just keep following that. And that was actually my experience. I had a great family life, a great great upbringing. It wasn't perfect, obviously, but when I came across a few books that gave me language for all the things that I was feeling, coming from a very Christian background and, and kind of now opening my eyes to the spiritual realm, I was so excited. I just could not get enough of it. I was at the Bodhi Tree bookstore 
on Melrose all the time. I was at Agape all the time. I was, you know, we met in yoga class. And so, so then I guess that was your experience as well, right? You didn't come from some deep, dark, rock bottom, dark night of the soul moment. No, exactly. And thank, you know, thankfully so, Mm -hmm. I think, but totally curiosity. And this is like combination between this, just knowing that sparked you know, I want to know more, you know, this resonates so deeply. Resonate is such a spiritual community word (laughs) that people say, but it's like, it's, there's no other way to describe it. It's just like this knowing that what you're reading feels so truthful to you. And it doesn't matter if it feels truthful to anybody else. It, It feels truthful to you. And then it compels you to start doing things that continue to improve your, your physical experience. Yeah. And the other thing you learn is that not everybody resonates with that because obviously you're excited, you're talking about it a lot, you're making references to these things, manifesting and affirming and all of that. And you, you know, people start rolling their eyes. I'm sure when you talk to Marty about it, he probably, <laughs> he's probably happy for you as his daughter, but he probably didn't really buy into it. I'm imagining, <laughs> I don't know. How did you come to terms with the safest places that you could talk about it or did you just not care? Yeah. Again, in my hypervigilance, I would determine if someone was open to talking about it and I would talk about it with them. And for me, who doesn't like confrontation and and drama, I avoided talking about it with people that I just didn't, you know, you kind of just know. And interestingly, around that same time, like I started paying attention and I think I learned this from Reverend Michael, but I would have a conversation with you or anybody else and I'd be talking about these things and I would just light up and I would feel this like surge of energy in my body. And he's like, follow that, follow what makes you excited to talk about. And I could talk about these concepts of quantum physics and energy and manifestation and subconscious mind and what happens after death and all this, these things I would just want to talk about for hours. And then juxtapose that to like, I booked a film and was carrying the film, which is like what I was a, had been striving for my whole life. And every day I would wake up, I would be drained. I didn't want to sit in the makeup chair two to two hours every morning, you know, memorizing my lines. It was very stressful for me because I had this pressure on myself that I have to do it right. And I was like, this is not, <laughs> Meryl Streep doesn't have this stress, which is why she's amazing. I don't know that I should be an actor because I'm way too in my head and self-conscious and beating myself up all the time. I just had this awareness, like I need to follow what gives me energy and and let go of something that is no longer feeding me that curiosity and passion. Were you forging relationships with these people who you admired, like the Beckwiths, like the Liptons and others who were in that more metaphysical field at that time? No, until I started actually like pursuing the beginning of making heal. I had put on a pedestal, all of these people and didn't feel Mm -hmm. worthy of having conversations. I was very shy in that way. And this was like that weird push pull of this whole acting thing. Like I love to be the star of the commercial and acting on it, but I was just connecting to humans outside of that and making new relationships. I was always very shy. That, That didn't come easy for me. I was uncomfortable starting these conversations and meeting new people. I would like take a class from Michael, but I wouldn't connect with him after feel worthy of asking him a question, you know, which is so, so interesting to think about. So when you decided to finally 
put this deck for your documentary together. What happened just before that? Why that time as opposed to, you said you've been germinating on the site for 10 years. So why that time in your life did you decide now is the time to finally take the first step? Yeah. So I had gone so far as to hire my friend as a producer because I was getting, I knew I was getting closer and I started, I said, if, you know, if I don't hire someone and start paying them kind of like what you did with finishing your book, the deadline Mm -hmm. that I would just maybe be scared because of the shyness I have and this fear, fear of failure, I'd, I'd keep kicking this can down the road. So I hired her for about a year and, and we would meet and we'd do research together Ironically, all the research that she did, it was like, didn't end up pushing the film forward. It was just, it was just holding me accountable. (laughs) The real last straw that got me to this place where I just knew I was ready. And I knew that I had to make this film was reading Anita Morjani's story, Dying to Be Me. And I really wanted Wayne Dyer in my film. Mm -hmm. So I, I was listening to something he was doing and he mentioned this Anita Morjani woman. And so I read her book and I was like, her story to me is so fascinating. And it's, she's the poster child of heel. I mean, her, she basically to, to keep it short, she had stage four cancer, lymphoma, and she had lemon sized tumors from her neck all the way down to her abdomen coming out of her skin. She had done Western medicine. She had done Eastern medicine. She was a Hindu woman that was raised in Hong Kong. So she was in both of these worlds. She tried everything. She had lost her best friend to cancer and she went into a coma. Her organs were shutting down her body. There's no way that any human would look at this physical body and say it could recover. It was just so far gone in that coma. She had a near-death experience. She went into the other realm and experienced that magnanimous love that many people describe on, on the other side. And she said, time was no longer linear. Everything was happening at once. And she encountered the essence of her father who in life, they had a very tumultuous relationship because he was very strict Hindu and she had been Westernized in Hong Kong. And she kind of went away from the religion, didn't have the arranged marriage and and really disappointed her father. And in that moment of, of being with his essence and communicating telepathically or just in a knowing there was no judgment. There was just pure, unconditional, this, this love that she couldn't describe. In that moment, in their conversation and exchange of, of information, she realized that every decision she had made in her life was driven by fear. And that's why she ended up with the cancer. And her dad basically said, you, you should go back to your body. You're not done with your work on earth. And she's like, I want to stay here. This feels fantastic. <laughs> But in that moment, she knew if she went back to her body, she would heal with this new knowing that it's that fear love thing. And, and and now she no longer had to fear death because she knows that we just go back to where we came from, pure love. And, and there's still the essence of who we are, whatever. So she had this shift in consciousness, came back into her body, recounted things that she would not possibly have been able to know in her coma that shocked the doctors. And within weeks, there was no more cancer in her body. And she goes around the world talking about it now. So I read that story and I was like, okay, that's it. I'm ready to do it. And that was kind of the the last straw, but it was just this knowing I was finally, I'm ready. Let's do this. I'm not as familiar with her story, but was it just the awareness that life continues on beyond body death that she credited with healing her body or what did she do something different when she came back out of the coma? Yeah. I think that experience of 
deep connection and oneness. She didn't mm. have a body on the other side. She was so connected to her father's essence and it was only love. There was no judgment. So she said it was just this clarity that we forget that when we're in these bodies and seemingly separate, but we are all connected. We are all one. We are, we're made from this divine love and that's where we're going back to. So basic human ego fears just dissolved. They no longer existed because this experience she had was so powerful. And mm-hmm. so it caused this like just permanent shift in her perception of life. And there was nothing else to fear. And I, I asked her when I interviewed her, I said, do you ever fear anything? Like, is there anything you ever fear now? Like, do you fall back into the old ways? And she says, maybe momentarily, you know, but I have the awareness now to go, oh, that's not me. That's my ego, or that's an old pattern or the energy in the room or whatever. So I'm like, how can we all get that shift in consciousness without having to have a near-death experience? All right. So you're going to do a film. Does it have a title yet? Is it called Heal at at this point when you put it together in the deck? Or is it just like documentary about people who get better? (laughs) (laughs) This is a great question. If I recall correctly, I think we came up with the name Heal. I'm picturing it on the deck. You know, I think that it had an actual title as I was sending it out to people. Okay. So you got to find people who are going through a healing journey or who have gone through a healing journey. You also have to find experts to talk about this. And, you know, now we've had what the bleep, we've had the secret, we've had other documentaries. So I'm imagining people like Deepak Chopra and Bruce Lipton, they're probably getting hit up thousand times a day for everybody and their mother wants to do a documentary and have them come in, give commentary. So what was the plan to get these people's attention? <laughs> exactly. And find um, these, these people who are going through these healing journey. Totally. You know, I had the awareness. I was just like, there's such a strong calling for me to do this that I'm just going to surrender and go, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea how this is all going to come together, but you know, I'd been to Agape enough times where Michael's just like, get out of the way, let go and let God. So I really had that kind of understanding that it was just, it was unfolding and it was going to unfold. And I just had to keep one step foot in front of the other. So I started by going to a celebrate your life conference because a bunch of these people, a bunch of these teachers that were in the secret and books that I read, you know, it was like Bruce Lipton, Greg Braden, Darren Weissman, Joe Dispenza, Marianne Williamson, Sue Mortar, Joan Borisenko, all of these people that I wanted in the film were at this conference. How did you find out about the conference? I don't know. I don't know how I found out. Like, were you looking for a conference where everyone's going to be in one place at one time? I think it was part of that whole period in my life. I was just like, so hungry to, I was in it, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to know more now that I gotten a taste and I'll tell you, because you asked before, after I watched The Secret, one of the things that I really implemented in my life was gratitude journaling. And I think it was Bob Proctor in the film, but he was all about writing down because I've I've been journaling since I was little, like writing as a medium of mine for just creative expression or whatever. So he would say, write what you're grateful for as if you already had them or as if they had already happened. So I just, every day wrote in my journal, I'm so happy and grateful now that that was his directive. And so I started doing this and it was basically about qualities that I wanted that I'm, you know, obviously financially free, 
that I can see a masseuse once a week, like just different qualities of life that I wanted. And he said, don't worry about the how. The how is going to trip you up. Just focus on what you want and feel the feelings of already having them. So I do that every day. And literally three months later, I was still waiting tables three times a week. And three within three months, I booked this job that I didn't even know existed. It was a fit model for guest jeans. And I went from like going paycheck to paycheck to working like a few hours a week every day, like four days a week, four hours a day and making over a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, oh my God, the secret really works, you know? (laughs) So that hooked me. And, you know, I still gratitude journal to this day and, you know, meditation is my lifeblood, but I started to do gratitude work around it. But then I found that I was just so into these talks at Celebrate Your Life Conference. And, and I just got so inspired and Heal was coming together in my mind, but I would have to connect with these people, which was, I was so like, my, my heart was racing and they would have these book signings after their talks. And I brought my producer friend, Rochelle with me and she was, she was great. You know, she really encouraged me and gave me confidence to connect with these people, but I was so uncomfortable. So I'd wait in line to have them sign my book. And then I'd be like, turn bright red and be like, I'm doing this film. And and they'd give me their card. And then I would follow up. And a lot of them said, yes, Andrew Weil said, no, Dr. Josh Axe said, no, those are two people that I pursued said no, but most people said yes. And then I, I randomly had this connection to Deepak Chopra and I met with him and he said, explain to me what you're doing. And he said, great, I'll do it. Like, All you need is like one, right? And then you yeah. can be like, Deepak Chopra's doing it. Correct. And so-and-so is doing it. And everyone else is like, oh, okay, well, if Deepak's doing it, then. So when you're at this conference, do you have the deck in your back pocket? I know you have a wonderful smile and presence and all of that, but did you have, <laughs> you have anything more than that? Or were you literally just pitching them within 20 seconds of... You know, because I'm sure there's a whole line of people behind you wanting to get their book signed, and they yeah. probably have a handler saying, "Come on, keep it going, keep it going." And then you're there trying to pitch your little idea. So, <laughs> exactly. what did you what did you have to to say or leave to them? What was your pitch? Yeah, you know, we were in the digital age, so I I just I gave them like a 20 second pitch because I knew I'm very again hyper vigilant. I don't want to piss anyone off in line. I don't want to get in trouble with a handler. So I'm just like. And then, you know, they would say, oh, that sounds interesting. You know, here, take my assistant's card or here's my card or whatever. And then I just followed up with a short, brief cover letter and the deck. And then, of course, when Deepak said yes, I was like, and Deepak Chopra is involved. (laughs) (laughs) So that made it like flow a lot better, you know. How developed was the project beyond just having a deck and a friend of yours who was going to be the producer? That was it. Um, (laughs) You didn't have a a start date. You didn't have anything, any other information to give to them. No, I I said it was finance because, you know, my husband graciously assured me that we would be able to do this. And so that was, you know, they just want to know that it's finance. That's, that's the harder part, hardest part of, of filmmaking. Nobody really asks the budget or sees, I think at that point, all of those, people, what I found is that they just go with their, their intuition and their gut, you know, they're pretty well connected. So they feel into it. They liked my energy and they, then they saw as more people were signing on and, and it's kind of a small community. It's like Bruce, Greg, Joe, they all know each other. So it's like, 
if they all decide to do it or they all talk about it and feel good about it, it's like, let's do it, you know? So it's cool that way. Is there an exchange? Like, do you have to pay people to be in a documentary like that? Or what do they get out of it? Great question. Documentaries, I don't think legally you can pay someone to appear in them because they're supposed to be, I mean, perhaps you can, but the spirit of a documentary is that it's supposed to be not incentivized or subjectified in any way. You're just supposed to get to the facts, Ruth. So we didn't pay anybody. They just all volunteered their time. And like I said, they're at this point in their life where they just want to share their teachings. And they hope that a few of them were concerned. Actually, only one person was concerned and she was a scientist and a researcher. And she either had been in a film before and they took her out of context and presented her in a way that she was very affronted by. And so she was terrified that that was going to happen again. So we had a lot of legal contracts around that, making sure I didn't, you know, she gets final approval over her interview and everything like that. But everybody else just kind of trusted. What about the fact that you'd never shot a documentary before? <laughs> again, <laughs> you should ask these were you, people. No. <laughs> were, you, were, you reading, were you reading documentary making for dummies at night while you were <laughs> reaching out to these people during the day? Totally. You do. You have to fake it till you make it. But I I had been on sets my whole life. And like I said, in the in the TP play pretend game of Lost, I, w- I kind of naturally liked that role of director. So I was nervous about the technical side of things. I was trying to educate myself on the technical direction because I wanted to see when like I knew what I was doing when I have these big names on my set. But as far as the creative directing, I had full confidence that I could learn as I go. And I surrounded myself with people that I felt had enough experience that they could hold my hand through the process. So let's cut to day one. What was that like for you? Sweaty. Um, I was, (laughs) I was nervous and it was so funny because I'm, I'm all about nature And I just envisioned this beautiful documentary that was going to be kind of a healing experience as you watched it. So it's going to be these beautiful scenes and the interviews will be outdoors and you'd see these elements of nature within the interviews. And so we shot Darren Weissman was our first interview. We were shooting with three cameras, three angles, and it was just like, outside. So we had to stop when the wind came, we had to stop. There's helicopters that like fly over my house for tourism. It's like, it was a disaster, but Darren was so gracious. And we ended up reshooting his interview because there were so many hiccups and it was kind of the training wheels day. I learned so much what not to do going forward that we went back and shot his interview months later because he was kind enough to do so. Was that just a fluke or was that like, if someone was an experienced documentary filmmaker, would they have known all those little things that got you kind of tripped up on that first day? Like, don't shoot outside. Don't start at this time. Yeah. And they would have been more prepared and had not play around with cameras and what you wanted on the day of the talent showing up. You would have actually rehearsed and figured out your shots beforehand in a professional manner. But for whatever the reason, my whole life, I've been a procrastinator. I work well under pressure. So that's just the way that I've functioned. And now in hindsight, like, yeah, I should have been way more methodical in my preparation. (laughs) So that's sometimes it's a benefit. I I used to just cram for tests the night before and ace them and not retain any of the knowledge, you know? So 
yeah, in hindsight, I think it was just my lack of preparation and, and planning. Okay. And then where do you find people going through healing journeys? So I know you, you, you've mentioned that you didn't just want people who had already healed. You actually wanted people who were going through it in real time, which is, I guess, much riskier as a documentary filmmaker, because you don't know what the timeline is going to be, right? Where do you find those people? And what were some of the challenges of documenting their journey? I had this lofty idea that like, I'm going to start and finish this documentary in one year's time, because there was just circumstances in my life that like, I had like a short window to complete this thing. Which is so funny because you don't, when you're doing a documentary, you don't know, especially following real people on healing journeys, you have no idea the timeline and the length of time it's going to take to watch this all unfold. Most documentaries are shot over a span of five to seven years, you know, or a lot of them. I don't know if most is accurate, but, and I had this idea. I wanted to do, find a veteran with PTSD and see how meditation could help them and perhaps psychedelics. And I really just wanted to highlight that community because so many are in need of healing. The veteran thing just was so hard to connect to. It's so interesting. Like I just, they're everywhere. There's so many, especially even in Los Angeles, like just right down on San Vicente Boulevard in Brentwood. But at the time we just didn't align with the right story or the right person because it wasn't obviously meant to be. But in the journey, like we found different people in that search for the veteran Ironically, while I was searching for the veteran, my friends who works at my husband's office and is the notary public came to our house to have us sign some documents for a property or something that we both had to sign. And she handed over the papers and I noticed on her hand, I didn't even barely notice, but she was like, oh, I'm so sorry about my rashes. I am just had this thing. And again, me being the shy, not really easy to connect person, I would never normally pry and ask further about that. I'd be like, oh my God, don't even worry about it. And then I'd sign the papers and move on. Well, I had this nudge to be curious and ask more. And so I asked her, you know, what's going on? And so she told me about this whole mystery illness and she ended up being in the film because I was like, wow, this is like fascinating. And also I really want to help you. Do you mind, you know, I'm making this documentary I know a lot of people in different modalities. Do you mind if I just document us trying to get to the bottom of your illness that you, it's been a mystery for five years that you've been dealing with. And she's like, okay, you know, she thought about it and she said, yeah, let's do it. So she was really courageous and letting me follow her. She was very private too. And then the other one is Elizabeth, because there's been other documentaries done about healing and, and this sort of thing, but they were all just talking heads interviews speaking in hindsight about their illness. And I wanted to see the real, feel the feelings that you go through because intellectually, everything I talk about in the film makes sense, but you put on the fear and the stress and finances and the fear of a diagnosis. Like you can't quite capture that unless you're experiencing that with, with the person. So I wanted to be conscious of that. And so we aligned with this woman who was the spiritual psychologist who had worked with a woman with stage four cancer and had documented the whole thing and wanted to make a documentary about it. So essentially we just hooked up with her and licensed her footage because she had already completed a lot of what I was looking for. So that one year process that I had this lofty goal of achieving just was made possible through the fact that 
we aligned with two people willing to be a part of our project. And I just licensed a lot of her footage that she already had. Did you have a certain number of cases in mind that you thought would make for a proper documentary? Like I need to have 10 people going through a healing journey. And if so, was it difficult to find that many people? Because like you say, if you're going through it, it's not usually something you want to announce to the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm from battling with X, Y, and Z. So how, how did that all play out? Yeah, I had the Trinity, the trifecta number in my head. I, I thought three was enough to where we could go deep, but would give us enough variety. And again, I was thinking cancer because it's so rampant today. I was thinking a veteran with PTSD and mental health issues. And then I was thinking of a child with perhaps autism or or something else. So we ended up finding this child with autism whose mom really helped him heal through diet and food. So that was really cool. And we filmed his story and his story is still in progress, but we ended up like at the end of the filming process, it was just too much. It ended up being actually too much to even follow three stories. So we ended up not using the, the kid's story in the film. And that was a choice we made. We made it into a short film that we gave to the mom later to use as she wanted. And her story was very much about physical nutrition, which is interesting. But when we looked at the scope of the footage we had in the interviews and what was coming forward most powerfully was all about like belief systems and forgiveness and the, the spiritual emotional aspects of it. That being the premise, like, okay, your belief system impacts or influences how your body responds to the environment. Was it hard to maintain integrity around that? Because you don't know what these people's healing journey is going to encompass. And obviously, you want to sh- show things that are going to support your hypothesis that, yes, your belief is huge when it comes to this. But h- how challenging was that? Like, did you find yourself suggesting to some of these people that, well, you know, try making affirmations or, you know, things like that so you could film it and it could support what you guys were talking about in the commentary? What are you suggesting? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I was definitely trying to be very sensitive to everybody's process and also be aware of my judgments and wishes and desires that I may perhaps be imposing on someone else. What I thought was so interesting about the woman with cancer who we followed, I thought her story was very compelling because she quote unquote did everything right. And she kind of looks like me. She's like a thin, tall blonde who did yoga, studied acupuncture, did green juices. Like she's very much LA yoga community. And yet she woke up one day with stage four anal cancer. That's was terrifying and so intriguing to me because I'm like, whoa, I'm I feel like I'm the pillar of help. I'm very aware, but she's an example that I could wake up with something growing beneath the surface. You know, I wanted to find out more. And also we filmed a bunch of other people. I had this energy healer do a group healing with people from all walks of life who had different diseases that we didn't even know what they were. They just we knew they wanted to show up for this energy healing session. So there were times when, and one of them was a family member actually, and there's times when, and you kind of hinted at this question before, like people that don't necessarily resonate with the same things you do, how do you converse with them? What I had to learn, because I want to, I genuinely want to help people, but you can't impose your beliefs on them. So I just tried to 
not lean in and force, but just offer up kind of a tray of options and encourage them to explore what felt best for them. And then there's just a certain point where you just have to let people have their journey, even though you have an intuition about what might be at the root and you feel like they have a major blind spot or whatever. It's like, you just have to allow people to have their journey and hold space with love and not impose your beliefs on them. So speaking of diagnoses, you were diagnosed with something during, I think it was the deck writing phase or maybe the beginning of your shooting. Can you talk about that experience and how that played a role in your sensitivity with the subjects going forward? Yeah. In the preparation phase, when I was finally kind of ready to do the film, or maybe even like a year before that, I had gotten a new doctor for my husband because obviously I'd been researching all of these things and he was in a very conventional kind of concierge doctor cycle where, you know, he had acid reflux, they'd give him a pill and it was just, he was taking more pills than I thought he needed to because he was very healthy, but he's just not educated. He's super busy and he's just going to trust his doctor. So as I started learning more and more, I said, you know, maybe we should find a more integrative doctor. And so we we got connected to this wonderful doctor who used to be a cardiologist and now is like this integrative internist. And we did all the blood tests and got him off, you know, some of the meds. And then we were just trying to do some new lifestyle interventions to eventually get him off all meds. While he was doing his blood test, I was like, well, let's just test all my blood because maybe there's a food sensitivity and maybe there's some minor tweaks we can do and I can be a little bit more vital and optimal. And like a week later, we get the labs back and the doctor's like, I need you to come in and see me in my office. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I go, is it about Alec? And he's like, no, no, it's about you. I'm like, oh, that's even more interesting. (laughs) So he basically said, you tested positive for Lyme disease. And I was like, really? And I thought back to my 20s. I was like, yeah, I had like brain fog and fatigue. And I've been dealing with it since my early 20s and maybe high school. Mm -hmm. But you just, I'm an athlete. I just like power through. And he said, I also have elevated levels of mycotoxins. So I had been exposed to mold probably multiple times in my life. I lived by the ocean my whole childhood. A lot of mold around there. And anytime there's a lot of moisture. And then specifically in an apartment in Santa Monica, I had lived in an apartment for three months and it was very dark and damp. And we started developing like lung issues, me and my roommate. And I looked up and I finally saw that there's like black mold coming through my closet above my closet. So we moved out, but we're never educated that you can move out of mold exposure and it's still rampant in your body. And it hides in tissues and various things. And then it just wears down your immune system. So he said, the good news is you have resources so you can, we can send you to Germany and you could do the three weeks of IV antibiotics and we could just treat the Lyme and then, you know, come back and we'll treat the mold. And I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. And I started researching and I was like, dude, three weeks of antibiotics. I feel pretty good. Like I feel fine. Nothing is acute. So I just had this awareness, like researching Lyme and everything. I had this like I felt my body going into panic and having a desire to call my mom and call my best friend and call these people that I knew were going to give me a lot of sympathy and be a little dramatic. But then I was like, but I'm feeling okay. And I know the body's capacity to heal. And 
so I remember just being at this crossroads, like I'm not going to fall into the fear and downward spiral that will have a more detrimental effect on my disease. And I'm just going to deal with it. So I just remember having that. And it's because I had the background of the research. Most people don't. And our instinct is to fall into victimhood, feel sorry for ourselves, be in fear and paralysis and call everyone we know and get the sympathy and Google and then get more terrified. And I called the doctor back and I said, it's great that I can go to Germany when I need to, but right now I'm not feeling any acute symptoms. And if I've had it, I've had it for a very long time. So let's just treat the mold first and let's keep an eye on the line. So I said, what do we need to do to treat the mold? He said, you need to come in for IVs twice a week, which I was like, what? I still have this phobia from (laughs) my childhood. Like I'm not getting IVs twice a week. There's no freaking way. Like I would literally go in and get the first IV. So high doses of vitamin C and glutathione. So heavy doses of antioxidants intravenously for like three months or something twice a week. I went in for the first IV and I just, I literally like start crying. I can't, I have this like anaphylactic reaction to IVs because I'm so terrified of the pain that I experienced. Anyways, the beautiful thing is through that, I kind of healed a lot of my fear around the IVs because I got used to them. I did it over six months. So I only went like once a week and skipped weeks and, and did, but after six months, we tested my blood for the mycotoxins. Most of them were gone. A new one showed up. And the Lyme was no longer in my system, or I was no longer testing positive for the two, the markers for Lyme. And after the first time I tested for Lyme, then he did a backup test with the actual Lyme lab that's like in the Northeast that specializes in Lyme. And it was consistent. So like, I definitely had the two out of the three markers that make you positive for Lyme in your system. But now I tested again and they were no, those markers were no longer showing up positive. So That's another interesting conversation for anyone listening. If you've tested positive for Lyme, definitely check mold because there's this correlation that is often hand in hand, and it could have something to do with the mold's suppression of your immune system because the immune system is constantly looking for it and trying to clear it out of your body. And therefore you're more susceptible to other little things like Lyme. But I found that was like pretty fascinating. Your IV treatment sounds like a relative, a fairly Western intervention. So how does one know when to try alternative or and or both when to try Western treatment? In my experience, intuition and finding a team of people or a doctor that you trust and that you feel is up to speed on the latest information and has a general awareness how everything is connected and also experience with treating your particular condition. So in my case, I really trusted my doctor because I know he's integrative. He does both. And he's always at conferences. He's always learning. He's he's spoken about Lyme before. He's spoken about mold before. So I, I knew he was pretty much up to date on the state-of-the-art kind of treatment. And to me vitamin C IVs with glutathione felt very natural to me. It wasn't like a pharmaceutical drug. It was vitamins. So I felt very comfortable trying that first, you know? And then, so for other people, when Elizabeth in the film 
got her diagnosis of stage four cancer, she had this background in acupuncture and she'd been greens juicing. And so she said, well, I'm definitely not doing the chemo and radiation. I know that's, you know, poison and that caught, you know, radiation causes cancer. Why would I do that? And her brother, who is a rocket scientist said, look, Liz, you've been juicing your whole life. More juice is not going to save you. You know, this is serious. You're late stage. Like you need to do the Western medicine. You can do all the other things, but you need to do the Western medicine to like stop the, the bleeding, the proverbial bleeding. So like a month later, she's still thought about it. And then she finally did it a month later. So I wasn't feeling super acute. The more acute, the more late stage, the more pain, the more debilitating symptoms you're having, obviously, you know, I may have chosen differently and you just like bring in the big guns and Western bombard that shit. But I felt the capacity to try natural first. And that resonated with me. But I think really your own intuition, if you can kind of become still from the panic and whether it's like walking in nature and just sitting on a park bench and like looking or walking on the beach and like having some quiet still time and really tune into which course feels best for you and talk to people you trust that you feel have some sort of knowledge and expertise. I think that's the best route. A lot of times, especially with cancer, people get a diagnosis and in the Western world, it's like they just put you on this urgent cycle to start chemo that, you know, if you get your diagnosis on Thursday, they're starting you in chemo on, on Monday. And you just have to know that you have time to breathe and tune into your intuition to, to know what's right for you based on the entire circumstance. Were you tempted or did you not think your case was serious enough to include in the documentary and, or how did it inform the way you approached your subjects who are going through healing journeys, your own experience? So in the original round of the deck, I definitely included, I got diagnosed with Lyme. I'm going to explore what this means. What is Lyme really? What are the treatments? You know, I'm going to conquer this thing kind of thing. And then as I was, I treated it. And also I didn't feel like it merited being in the film because again, I wasn't experiencing the acute neurological symptoms that a lot of other people with Lyme have. Now I will say, had I not had the knowledge and background that I had and this understanding of how the human body works, I would have spiraled down into fear. I would have gone into victim mode for who knows, maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe a year. And most likely that would have made my health spiral downwards quicker. And I see that all the time. I saw it with the panic and coronavirus. It just exacerbates people's symptoms and condition and speeds the degenerative process because you're in fight or flight, you're in high stress mode, and that just really shuts down your immune system. So it will exacerbate any condition that you have if you stay in that victim mindset and fear too long. I had that working for me. I didn't go down that route. But ultimately, I just decided that my case was very mild and it was very, it, it felt self-indulgent of me to even tell people that that was my experience because I didn't suffer like many people do. Obviously, you had to have some sort of outline when you were going through the filming process, maybe some predetermined or pre-written questions for the experts and the people who were going through their journey. Was there anything outside of that that surprised you? 
about this whole thing that you're kind of documenting? And if so, what, what was that? What were some of the main things that surprised you or patterns that you saw in people's stories? A couple things, you know, all very subtle. Cause like you said, I kind of knew what I was going to ask going in. I knew my hypothesis. I knew what the perspectives were of all these experts that I was going to interview and they all supported my belief systems. So one thing that I think is important to that really hit home with me was when I was talking to Bruce Lipton and we were talking about the subconscious mind and the programming and how our brains neurologically are just like sponges downloading information from our environment from the ages of in utero to seven years old. And that's just biological development. And so what I thought was so interesting is that we are taking on other people's belief systems, behaviors, energies, all of that's just like software programs downloading into our brains, which is the hardware. Then those become the lens through which we look at life throughout our whole life. And we're running on these subconscious programmings that 75% of these beliefs are negative and disempowering, which we've all experienced some version of, I am not worthy. I am not lovable, you know, whatever these inadequacy belief systems are that we got from our parents that they got from their parents and down, 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 so on and so forth. And so I found it fascinating because when I combine that idea with epigenetics and how the genes are just a blueprint that we get from the gene copy from our mom and our gene copy from our dad, they combine and we have this new genetic code that exists in us. And it's just this like blueprint that we can turn on and off the making of proteins based on our environment, our lifestyle choices and our perceptions of life, et cetera. I thought it's so interesting that we have this belief that like, oh, all of these things are hereditary. I had this notion that it's not because the genes are being, it's because the same environments and the same belief systems are getting in the same diets and the same stressors are being passed down. So we're epigenetically passing these things down, but it just takes one generation or one person in a family line to wake up and create new belief systems and new lifestyle choices and new diet habits to to change that chain of heredity. So I thought that was interesting. And also like, because all of these belief systems are in our programming is subconscious, we're not even aware that we have some of these belief systems. We're not even aware that we're operating through life with this kind of lens of I am not worthy or Elizabeth in the, in the film, she had this experience when she was a child and she believed that she was pathetic. So she has this belief loop in her head saying, I am pathetic. And then she keeps attracting circumstances and relationships in her life that confirm I am pathetic, but it's all subconscious. So we're not aware. So one of the beautiful things of the film is we may get their blind spots. So we may get a disease or condition and a lot of the research, you know, when we interview people that went through something gnarly and came out the other side and healed, they all look back and say, no, that was my greatest gift. It realigned with my purpose. It taught me this. It gave me this, whatever. It woke me up. So we talk about disease as like a wake-up call to shine the light on some of these belief systems or habits or lifestyle behaviors that we have that we need to change that aren't in alignment with our highest good. When people think about someone like you 
going through this process of creating this work of art that's going to help a lot of people, obviously, right? I think when, when we think about that, someone who's following their purpose, who's found their passion, we imagine that they kind of know what they're doing and they have it all figured out. And that's not been my experience. In fact, I talk about in my book, Knowing Where to Look, when you are inspired to follow your heart, there's a combination of excitement and uncertainty, fear. And you're kind of always balancing those two. And I'm just curious, in your experience where you're going through this process, which parts of it were most exciting to you and which parts of it were most uncertain or did you have most fear around? Yeah, it's it's exactly. It's like that equal and opposite reaction. So it was the most exciting to me to be able to sit down with these people that I admired and that were my teachers that literally they're talks and books changed my life, you know? So for me to be able to sit down in a room and talk to them and get to be curious and have a conversation, that was obviously the most exciting. The editing process was exciting because I got to like, it's just like so creative. And I loved that. It's like dancing and it's like a puzzle in your head you have to figure out. And I had a wonderful editor that she gets all the credit. Like, you know, the film is so beautiful because she knew how to do that dance so well. And, and for me to be able to guide her, that was a cool part of the process. But yeah, the fear part, I mean, showing the product, like actually putting the film out there, it is so terrifying to put something out there that you've worked so hard on. So that was debilitating. And then going around to these, like the film festival. And I mean, the film was well-received, so that helped. But if it hadn't been, I mean, I don't know that I could have the strength to recover. You know, I don't have thick skin like that. So that was really terrifying that kind of once it's done to even just finish again, the commitment issues to, for, for an artist, it's very difficult to have a finished product because you're just never done. There's so much you can do and you don't want to be done. It's a work of art. So just putting it out in the world was, was terrifying. And then obviously the beginning stages as I was learning, as I was going, those are terrifying, but Partway through, you know, you just gain confidence and you realize, oh, wait, I do have an opinion. I do have a point of view and I, I am confident in this. And you start to listen to that calling more. So I just encourage everybody. It's like nobody knows what they're doing the whole time. You got to fake it till you make it. And, and life is about making mistakes and learning. They're not failures. You're learning and you course correct along the way. And then you look back and four years later, this film keeps going. And to me, I had to let go too of the outcome. I didn't have any lofty ideas about, you know, I just didn't want to look that far down the line. I just knew in my soul I had to, to do this. I was passionate about the content. I loved the experience of, of doing it. And I just wanted to close my eyes and let it go. And then just like move on to the rest of my life. So it was a knowing. And I just encourage anybody that has that strong calling in their heart, just do it because there's a reason you have that. And there's going to be an energy behind it that guides you. And the rest is other people's opinions like you can't control. So you just, you got to do what your heart tells you to do and let everything else go. And once you complete a film like this enough to be shown to the world, are people clamoring for this kind of content? Do you, is it like a political thing? You have to know the right people at Netflix or iTunes, or how do you even like, do you have to hire someone to that has all those connections? Like what's the next step once the, the film is in the can? Yeah. So the next step is distribution, which is, you know, I 
been involved in production of films and stuff enough to know that the distribution process is kind of a racket and the independent filmmaker just loses all control of their film and most don't make money. And so I wasn't looking forward to that part. It's kind of an icky process, you know, God bless the distributors, but just the the institution is not filmmaker friendly. And so we were just like, okay, we're going to submit it and try to get a distributor. And then that distributor is the one who sells territories and makes the relationship with Netflix and whoever else. And by the grace of God, again, it was this energy, like we went and premiered at the Illuminate Film Festival, which is this consciousness film festival in Sedona. And I can't remember, we had been contacted before because we started the social media campaign before the film was finished. And this guy that worked at one of the big documentary distributorships reached out and was interested. And then we premiered it and he saw it. And later that month, we signed with him. So it was this effortless process. And then cut to, we had this release kind of grassroots release strategy and we retained kind of the theatrical rights. And then we gave this company and this guy the SVOD and the VOD rights. So it's like the subscription video on demand, like a Netflix rights. So the film comes out in December. It's like the number one documentary on iTunes and everybody's thrilled, but I keep seeing it on Netflix and January 5th or something, Netflix sends out an industry-wide memo that says, we're not taking on independent films anymore. We're creating, you know, we're putting all our resources into creating Netflix original content. And so my distributor called me and he's like, look, bad news. We're not going to get Netflix. They're not even looking at independent films. I said, no, I just see us on Netflix. I don't know why. Like, and this is for me to say no is very weird. I usually would just be like, okay, well, wherever we end up is fine. You know, like, I'm just like, I don't like to stir the pot, but I was just like, can we just keep, let's just keep going forward as if we're going to get Netflix. Cause I just feel that this movie should be on Netflix. And then a month later, they kept knocking on the door and timing was right. Wellness was just starting to like get really hot and mainstream. And so they gave us a chance, but they told us, okay, we'll take Heal, but we're not going to release it till the following February. So we literally signed the contract and had to wait a whole year for it to go on Netflix. But again, just divine timing. Wellness was even hotter. People were even more open to the concepts of Heal a year later being on Netflix, you know, it was it did so well on iTunes that whole first year and then it hit Netflix February of 2019 and it got this like rebirth and a re, you know, a next wave. So you just have to trust in divine timing and it just it just felt like everything was in flow and you just have to like go after what you feel is the correct thing. I just had this again, it's just this like knowing. And if it ended mm-hmm. up not not working out. I I had a knowing that it would end up where it's supposed to, but I was just like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not feeling this is the end of us for Netflix. You know? So what was your idea of success for Heal when it was being released or distributed? Um, Did you imagine like I'm gonna accept an Oscar for it? If it doesn't, if I don't get an Oscar, then this I'm gonna be disappointed or no. I mean, I still have like some weird lofty goal of getting an Oscar one day, but I don't know how that's gonna be possible (laughs) because I don't know that I'll ever do another film. But I knew that heel wasn't very Oscar appropriate. So I didn't really think about that at all. Sundance would, would have been cool, but our timing wasn't right. Honestly, I felt like we had something so so helpful for anybody that was struggling that I was just like, let's just, I just want to get it out there. I just want to get it out there as fast as possible because with a lot of indie films, especially like this, they were 
like you should go on the festival circuit for six months and get a better distribution deal or whatever. And I said, no, let's just sign with this distributor. He came effortlessly. He's totally aligned. Let's do four film festivals, five, six film festivals to get the laurels. And then let's, let's just get it out there. Like people need to see this, you know, for instance, my friend Stacy got diagnosed with stage three C ovarian cancer in like October. And the film was coming out December. And I gave her an advanced copy right away. She watched it and she like did, she contacted a lot of people in heal and she just, it just opened her eyes to a different way of approaching her healing journey. And God bless eight months later, she's disease free, but I just felt like it's a good tool for people that don't necessarily have the knowledge that I have now because I didn't before. So my, my goal was to make our money back, pay the financiers back, the investors, so that I could just like feel like my hands are clean and then help people. That was, that was the goal. Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote the book Outliers. And he said, once he released it into the world, one of the things that surprised him was how this whole concept of it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert became basically the catchphrase from the book, which was really an aside that he included, but that wasn't even the point he was making when he put that in his book. And I'm wondering, is there anything from your film when it was out into the world, any takeaways that got traction that surprised you? Or did the things that got traction, were they things that you predicted would be received well by the viewers? Yeah, I think that was it. One thing that surprised me is that the messages that still come in daily asking about Eva, the woman with the the boils, who mm-hmm. was still on an open-ended journey when the when the film ended, you know, spoiler alert. So many people say, This is I had this, or I'm a medical intuitive, she has this, and literally like thousands of messages, and I had to sift through them and I trickle a few to her, but overwhelming care of people like generally just like wanting to help her, you know, which is so beautiful. And I wish one of them had the easy answer, but most of them, she's like, I tried that. I don't have that. I did this already. You know, the other one that I love is Deepak saying, go get the best medical advice, get your diagnosis, find out what's going on in your, in your system, but never accept someone's prognosis. And I think this is the cornerstone of the film because if you believe in the, the, the prognosis, especially if it's like something like cancer and you only have, you know, the prognosis doesn't look good. It's a five-year life expectancy. You have to try all these chemos, but that's the longest you're going to live. And I'm sorry. Like if you buy into that nine times out of 10, that's a self-fulfilled prophecy and you go down and you perpetuate that awful st- statistic. Why can't you be that one to 2% that has this anomaly case of radical remission or whatever, you know? there's a formula that they did that we can all tap into. So that's why I love Kelly Turner's radical remission research and Jeffrey Redeker's research and his book cured. It's people taking control of their health back, finding out what's going on, but not buying into any negative outlook that some medical professional has about their life. Nobody knows or can tell you what's possible for you. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was my next And one of the final questions is, let's say I don't have access to a higher end integrative doctor because those guys usually only take cash and, you know, they don't use insurance and all of that. And I watch Heal and I'm going, I've been diagnosed with something and I don't have a lot of resources. In addition to 
radical remission and cured. What are you like your give me like the top five books that I could read to get a good foundational understanding of how I can heal myself? And I know mm-hmm. Heal is also a book that you turn the the documentary into a book because there's a lot of content you weren't able to, a lot of great content that you were not able to include. So that also exists. But what are some of the other books that you think people should definitely consider checking out who don't know anything about this world? Yeah. Okay. So definitely radical remission is key. Look for cancer. I like reading books by people who heal themselves of cancer. There are a lot of them have to do with diet, but so radical remission, Anita Morjani's book, Dying to Be Me, Chris Beat Cancer, Chris Carr, I think crazy, sexy, crazy, sexy. Yeah. Crazy, sexy. So there's, there's, yeah, exactly. (laughs) As far as just like general overall healing, I would say the biology of belief, it gets a little scientific, but I think it is very empowering. These are great questions because I have so many. We have a list of book resources on the healdocumentary.com. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of books on there. Joan Borisenko writes just there's so many books about the mind-body connection and what these people have learned. Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life is a big one. I like Wayne Dyer. I'm listening to Wishes Fulfilled again right now. And he wrote The Power of Intention. So he, you know, he works with a lot of people who have used this whole belief and affirmations combined with different modalities to really focus on i am healed you know i am healthy and 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 take your attention off the disease and on to your wholeness that exists we just need to focus on that wholeness you know that potential so many i mean there's so many books i could well they have to check out the reading list on the yeah. website all right, cool. So you have a documentary under your belt. You've got a book under your belt. You've got a podcast that you're doing now. Your mother, like, how are you defining success these days for yourself? Great question. It's ever changing because it, you know, I constantly am questioning what am I striving for because I have <laughs> I have these desires. You know, I like certain conveniences, but what's most important to me right now is is spending time with my daughter. And really showing up as the best mother I can be for her so that I don't pass down my negative subconscious programming. You know, she's in those crucial download years, you know, but at the same time, if I was playing with my two-year-old all day, I'd go crazy. So like I, I do have this need to create and express and explore and work on my own personal growth and be curious and investigate things I'm curious about. So this, the heal podcast is really inspiring to me right now. It's a lot of work and I'm trying to navigate that balance of really being present for my daughter and doing this podcast. But the conversations I'm having are, you know, again, they light me up. I get to speak with people like you and explore these ideas and experiences and, and learn from each other's experiences. So I always have to be doing something but it's just finding that balance. So that's success, I think, is really finding that balance where you're taking care of yourself so that you can take care of others better and also creating and expressing your passions. Beautiful. And then final question, a waitress comes up to you. She's waitressing three nights a week. She's got an idea for a documentary that would help people. What what do you advise her as her first few steps? Well, 
start to gratitude journal. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, why not? Right. Like that's, yeah. that's that people dismiss stuff like that, but I think that's like, that should be a key part of your business plan. Meditation, gratitude journal, affirmations. Totally. I am all about that. I would, I would definitely say meditation because you just, again, but heal was such a calling for me. And I think meditation allowed me to quiet that cacophony of negativity in my head and, and the overanalyzing and the negative thoughts that you pick up from the world and really get still and, and listen to that calling in my heart and, mm-hmm. and put me on that path of curiosity and investigation. So meditation and that, again, that gratitude practice, actually, it helps us take conscious control of our mind because the way our biology is for survival, we're hijacked to look for in our environment, the negative, the stressful, the scary, fearful. And we have this 24 seven news cycle and we have our smartphones and we're just getting inundated. So our brain will naturally go to the worst case scenario in the future. That is not a reality. It hasn't happened yet. It's just this worst case scenario. And then we're feeling anxious and then we're doing all these things to avoid that if we can spend time every day focusing and training our brain on what we do want and then feeling into feeling that, you know, that's creative visualization. It's combining the, the gratitude of feeling already what you want is here. So if you want to heal, it's like spending time every day and using your brain and your mind and your heart in positive creation, co-creativity. You're you're so grateful you are healed. And you say that over and over and you feel into it or you write it down and you feel into it. And that's what Joe Dispenza causes, uh, calls the quantum model of causing an effect. And to me, it's just taking conscious control of your mind and using it for you know co-creation and, and, and positive things rather than letting the world hijack our mind, which is what happens every day. And listen to some Michael Beckwith talks, yeah. And some Joe Dispenza <laughs> lectures, and just keep That's all right. that going in the background, right? That's right. That's right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being so generous and sharing your story. I think it's going to help a lot of people. I like to loop these conversations back around to childhood, and the thing that stood out for me is this idea of playing lost with your friends in the TP and being sort of the person who would rally the troops and get everybody playing this game. And I've been accused of being quite generous with my interpretation of the childhood (laughs) activity and what someone ended up doing as their purpose. But I think there are a lot of people out there today that are kind of lost in their own healing journey. They're not quite sure what to do next, where to go next, what to try next. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you have dedicated a significant part of your life to helping people find their way back to themselves, because I think ultimately that's where it needs to go in order for the healing to fully take effect, is you have to come back to yourself. You have to understand that you have everything that you need within you to take that next step. And if you give your power over to a certain body of medicine or to someone's prognosis, then it's you're taking five steps back to take one step forward. And so I just, I want to acknowledge you for following through on all of those steps when, especially when it didn't, maybe didn't seem possible at some points, but you said yes anyway. And when you were uncertain about your ability to direct and you said yes anyway, and when all the things happen that happen when someone is following their 
heart to all the uncertainty, you say yes anyway. I think that's really the takeaway that I want people to get from this conversation. It's not about creating a documentary. It's not about writing a book. It's not about starting a podcast. It's just about whatever your version of that is, saying yes to it. Even if it seems like a small and insignificant step, it can be powerful. And even if it seems like a setback, like you get a diagnosis, it could be something that you use that will inform your path or purpose further down the line. So yeah, thank you so much for being that example. And I hope you, I'm not going to say, I hope you create another documentary, but you know, you did it. You did such a fantastic job that I, I would like to experience more of what you are obviously really great at communicating those stories. So in whatever form it takes shape, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, thank you, Light. Thank you so much. And that was a fun journey back to my childhood. I haven't thought about <laughs> that TP or that game in so long. So thank you. You're welcome. We'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Light. Thank you for listening to my interview with Kelly Noonan-Gores. I know we mentioned a lot of books and other references in the conversation, and I've linked to all of them in the show notes, which you can find on lightwatkins.com slash tunnel, along with a transcript of my interview with Kelly, in case you're the kind of person that likes to read interviews in addition to listening to them. Also, if you want to hear more stories like Kelly's about people who've switched careers or who've overcome health challenges, you can now search my podcast by subject matter. Again, if you go to lightwatkins.com slash tunnel, you'll see a list of all the podcast episodes. But above that list is a drop down menu of subjects like leap of faith and perseverance and financial difficulties, health difficulties. So in case you want to hear a specific kind of conversation about people who have overcome financial difficulties, health difficulties, who've persevered, it'll show you all of the podcast interviews that are related to that specific topic. And while you're on my site exploring topics, have a look in the navigation menu and click on the link entitled Books. And you're going to see my new book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. If you haven't heard of it before, it's a book that is full of my own personal inspirational stories, as well as classic stories that are meant to provide you with a dose of inspiration. I know that some people don't like reading books. I'm with you on that. The good news is this book is not meant to be read from cover to cover. Instead, you just flip it open to any page, whatever catches your eye. You'll see a dose of inspiration that'll only take you 30 seconds, maybe a minute to read, but not longer than that. I've also launched a new online community called the Happiness Insiders. And for a limited time, those of you who have a copy of Knowing Where to Look, will have complimentary access to my community. So this is a community where we go deep into the tangible, accessible inner practices that are responsible for cultivating true happiness. And on top of getting quality instruction, you'll get quality support and accountability and connection. So there's a lot there for you. So make sure you give yourself a few extra minutes to poke around and see what kind of experiences you would like to curate from my list of offerings on the website. And my final ask is that you leave reviews, leave a review of the book. If you have that on Amazon, leave a review for this podcast. It's very simple to do. You just look at your screen right now and click on the name of the podcast and scroll down past the previous episodes. 
and you'll see a space that says ratings and reviews with five blank stars. Just tap the star on the far right and you've left a five star review. And so the next person is going to have a slightly easier time finding these kinds of conversations because you took 10 seconds to do that for us. So big shout out to those of you who've already left the reviews and the ratings and you made it easier for everyone to find this episode. And otherwise, I'll look forward to seeing you hopefully next week with the next story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you lately that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.